Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blaxland and today I'm joined by Dr Claire Williams, Associate Professor of Psychology. Claire is an applied neuropsychologist and clinically focused researcher. Her work focuses on brain injury, specifically the emotional functioning after brain injury and the neurobehavioural legacies of brain injury. Dr Claire Williams, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Oh, thank you very much and it's great to be here. Great, it's good to have you. Can I start uh, by asking you just to introduce uh, yourself and your research and you know, just some of your key findings? Yeah, so thanks for introducing me. I initially came to Swansea University for my undergraduate degree. And before I knew, I completed an MSc in clinical psychology. And as you say, now I'm a applied neuropsychologist and clinically focused researcher. And in terms of my research interests, I'm particularly interested in the topic of acquired brain injury. And within that topic, I have a number of different interests, really. So things around how brain injury can affect someone's emotional behaviour or the way they perceive and recognise emotion and also the neurobehavioural legacies of brain injury. And then also things such as how much we know about brain injury, so how we perceive it, any misconceptions that we can hold, as well as how it can affect, for example, decision making in criminal justice systems. And in terms of some of my main findings today, we'll be talking about neurobehavioral legacies of brain injury and how I have developed different assessment tools to support the assessment of neurobehavioral disability in survivors, but also in terms of helping clinicians and health professionals to plan treatment and to support rehabilitation. It's a big topic, a fascinating topic. So I'm looking forward to sort of walking through it. Let's start with acquired brain injury. I know it's sometimes abbreviated to ABI. So can you tell us more uh, about this? I I know that in the past you've described it as a silent epidemic or an invisible disability. So yeah, tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. So an acquired brain injury really refers to any injury to the brain which has occurred since birth. For example, that could be an injury to the brain because of some violent blow or jolt to the head, for example. So a road traffic accident or a fall such as falling off a ladder and then the back of your head hitting the pavement, or even things like an assault, such as being struck on the back of your head by a glass bottle or a baseball bat. And then acquired brain injury also includes other things or other causes, such as tumour, a stroke, or even a hemorrhage. And acquired brain injury, we know is, for example, it's, it's more common in certain groups of people than others. So for example, it's more common in males or among people aged under 25 or over 74 years of age, as well as being more common actually in incarcerated groups and prison populations. But what we know is that even though it is more common in some groups than others, it is ultimately this really serious global public health issue. And we often describe it, as you say, as this silent epidemic, as its effects are often invisible and underestimated. Yeah, I mean, when we compare it, say, to other serious illnesses or diseases, well, how does it compare to them in terms of the numbers and the and the data? Well, how it compares is that, first of all, I think many people don't really appreciate or realise just how common an acquired brain injury actually is. 
Did you know, for example, that there are approximately 1.3 million people in the UK who are living with the devastating long-term effects of an acquired brain injury? So to put that into perspective, we could see that as acquired brain injury really affects approximately one family in every 300. Or to put it another way, that every single year in the UK, around 350,000 people are admitted to hospital with a suspected acquired brain injury. So to put that in terms of time, that's one person every 90 seconds. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. You mentioned it's more common in men. Is that a physiological thing or is that more down to the fact that you know you said that it can often be a result of fighting and things like that? Yeah, so it can reflect, for example, the causes of brain injury. So we find that forms of acquired brain injury in younger males tend to be more prevalent because of things like road traffic accidents, whereas then on the other side of the age bracket, over 75 years of age, we might more readily see, for example, a higher incidence of falls being the primary cause of injury. And when it comes to that younger age group, are road traffic accidents the the most common reason why people have acquired brain injuries or is it other things? No, absolutely. So a road traffic accident as well as assaults are really notable causes of brain injury in that specific age bracket. That's why we often say, you know, if you're you're driving a wear seatbelt, you know, be safe, don't drive under the influence of alcohol and drugs, for example, because young males potentially, because of this kind of increased risk-taking behavior, are particularly vulnerable mm. to sustain an acquired brain injury because of a road traffic accident. And then there's the there's the other the other possibility, which is that there's been a a brawl on a Saturday night or something, and someone's been whacked over the head, or they've they've fallen over and and hit their head on the pavement. Yeah, absolutely. And you've probably come across sort of national campaigns. So in terms of a one blow knockout, for example, so having that brawl again can be quite a common cause actually of a brain injury. Yeah, I can't be alone uh, knowing people of my age group and people I went to school with who have suffered from this exact thing from just one you know, one punch to the head in one case and mm. a very severe brain injury re- resulting from it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think even though a lot of us, when we reflect on acquired brain injuries, you know, quite often we can think of someone who has been affected. I still think that ultimately we perhaps underestimate just how prevalent or how common it actually is. And if you think about that one in every 300 families or that one person every 90 seconds, the incidence of brain injury is perhaps far greater than you'd expect, for example, on other things such as Alzheimer's disease, cancer, cardiovascular disease. But we don't really tend to hear as much about it, do we? No, no, absolutely not. And in the in the older age groups, obviously, older people are more uh, susceptible to things like strokes. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. So if you think about the older age bracket, it's like I said, you know, the risk of, for example, road traffic accidents or having a brain injury from an assault, for example, perhaps aren't as great, but in turn, mm. they are more vulnerable then to, for example, falling and hitting the head or, for example, again, increased risk of things like stroke. It, it, it's really been driven home to me the extent to which this is this is quite common, which is which is fascinating. Can we talk now about NBD or neurobehavioural disability? Tell us about that. So in terms of neurobehavioural disability, 
this is really a term that we use to capture this wide range of disabilities, which often result in what we refer to as these wholesale changes to a person's character or to their personality. And when we think about the term of neurobehavioral disability, it's actually quite a complex one to explain. But the main things I think I would like to communicate about it is that really it can follow any form of acquired brain injury. But it usually happens when the frontal structures of our brain are compromised in some way or they're injured in some way. And in terms of really getting a good feel of what it is, it's often easier to think about it in terms of the form it can take for the person, so how they experience it. So, for example, someone may experience problems related to the ability to perceive emotion or to recognise emotion in other people. They can experience, for example, things as variable mood, feeling really irritable, um, having poor temper controls, for example, and then even things like poor motivation and drive. So if you take the impulsivity one, so for example, people with brain injury can appear quite impatient and even intolerant, perhaps, of other people's mistakes. And they can be easily irritated by disruptions. And that could be things like noise from children or noisy machinery, like the garden kind of lawnmower going off. And that can be quite frustrating and irritating because it can disrupt their concentration, which they can find incredibly difficult. And then the other things to note really are that all of these types of changes or forms of neurobehavioral disability are really long lasting. They're really enduring and they're really pervasive. But as well as being very enduring, one of the difficulties we have around how we think and how we identify neurobehavioral disability is that the symptoms of it and how it expresses can actually be quite subtle too. And often we find that many aspects and forms of neurobehavioral disability are not initially obvious in the early stages of recovery, but instead it tends to be that the true extent of neurobehavioral disability and its symptoms may be masked in the early stages, but they can become much more evident as time passes. For example, this might be when a person leaves the confines, for example, of a hospital or a rehabilitation unit. And that's because both of those are really highly structured environments. You know, their day is almost planned for them. They have support structures there in place. But when then they return to more community independence, they then have to then re-begin to reorganize their lives, for example. They're then making decisions as they normally would. They're re-establishing their emotional connections, their relationships with other people. And they're settling back into what was before their day-to-day routine. So that's when we tend to see it becoming much more prevalent, irrespective of what shape or form or composition that I suppose the symptoms of neurobehavioral disability actually take. We know it's it can have a really important or profound impact on that person's recovery. By that I mean it's it's present is really it's associated with, for example, a poorer recovery or poorer rehabilitation outcomes or a lack of social independence, or having this reduced quality of life. So it's, it's really incredibly important that we, we think about neurobehavioral disability after brain injury. Yeah, I find that, that fascinating, that idea that there, there is a routine in a, in a rehabilitation centre, for example. So it, there is a lag in actually recognising what might be a challenge for, for some people. But can I just pick up on, on symptoms? You, you talked about symptoms. 
I suppose it depends on the kind of injury that somebody has sustained, what their kind of symptoms will be, because obviously symptoms will vary hugely, won't they? Well, absolutely. And no one brain injury really is the same. Mm. It is ultimately this really kind of heterogeneous condition. But when we think about acquired brain injury, we know that, yes, symptoms and the nature of those symptoms can be dependent on the area of neurological injury or damage. But we tend to see common themes, should we say. So we know that, for example, individuals can experience really quite profound changes, really, in their mood, for example, their behavior, their personality and emotion. And just to give you a few examples so we can really get a good feel for what some of those changes might be like. So a person with brain injury, for example, may experience poor concentration or memory problems, or they may have trouble organizing facts in their minds or have difficulty learning new information, or for example, have this general feeling of information overload. And then you have those changes which relate more to behavior and personality. So for example, difficulty understanding other people, feeling really tired and fatigued, or speaking without really thinking through the consequences of what you're saying, which can then unintentionally cause offense, for example, or upset someone that you you really love, for example. And then at other times, you can have changes in how someone experiences emotion. And that's really important because emotion is really this I suppose this pivotal aspect of human behavior, isn't it? You know, we all rely on emotion day to day to, you know, think about how our loved ones are doing, to respond appropriately in social situations. So having this inability, whether it's to empathize with someone else or to just detect emotional cues in everyday language or on facial expressions of other people can be a barrier to everyday life. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. I assume some people's, even their speech can be affected too, or their speech patterns or their ability to find words, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And we have conditions such as aphasia, for example, where it does really relate to kind of word finding difficulties and kind of difficulties with language and communication. And it's interesting for me, actually, is some recent work I've done related to communication. And it's, again, linking this idea that emotion is so fundamental to the way we interact with other people that what I'm finding is that if someone has had these emotional changes following brain injury, for example, they might have difficulty identifying their own emotions or verbalizing them to other people, that in turn actually causes them to have difficulties communicating ideas and their feelings and their behaviors and just life to other people. So sometimes these types of symptoms can be quite connected to one another as well. Absolutely. And they don't, they blend into one, don't they? You know, you talk about mm. empathy and emotion and, and all sorts of things. What, what I find particularly fascinating about, about all of this and about the brain is that there are different parts of the brain that control different things, aren't there? So if you have a frontal lobe injury, that affects you in a certain way. I've got a little bit of experience with this. And I know that when the person who I know had a brain injury, we were told almost immediately, it's likely that empathy has been affected here because of the place of the injury on the brain. And I just find that, I just find that remarkable. So is it sometimes possible to pinpoint the kind of, you know, neurobehavioral disability that someone will have depending on the kind of injury? 
Yeah, so of course, on the one hand, you know, this is not a case of saying with absolute certainty that an area to a part of the brain will result in this particular outcome. And quite often when we talk about acquired brain injury, specifically as well, when it's because of a traumatic cause, you don't tend to find kind of isolated patterns of injury. It tends to be quite diverse or widespread. Mm. But what we do know is that when the frontal structures of the brain are implicated, which they commonly are, for example, after a road traffic accident or mm. a fall, is that they do tend to, to lead to, for example, changes in emotional behavior. And that's because we know those structures play a really important role generally in our emotional behavior. So again, naturally, if they are injured or implicated in some way, we then see concomitant problems arising from that. And I suppose empathy is this, this classic one. So we know from kind of thinking about the structure of the brain and how it functions and how it controls behavior, that the frontal structures of the brain do play a really important role in empathy. And by empathy, I really mean this ability for us to empathize really with the emotional needs of other people or to be able to step into the, their shoes so we can appreciate on this cognitive level how they might be feeling or, or how they're experiencing an event. And again, we know that after a traumatic form of brain injury, that as many as, for example, over 60% of individuals have this marked impairment in empathy. And, you know, that can have really significant, I suppose, consequences that can range from, for example, impacting on their close personal relationships. So for example, their marriage or how they connect to other significant loved ones. It can also then lead to, I suppose, this unraveling of other symptoms or experiences, for example, increasing feelings of anxiety and depression, or contributing further to feelings of social isolation that they might have. Yeah, and I suppose if you've sustained uh, a brain injury and, and your personality has changed to some extent, then the people who know you very well now know potentially a slightly different kind of person. Is it, is it fair to go that far and, and describe it like that? Absolutely. And it reminds me actually of one of my first experiences of working clinically in this area mm. and how frequently it would come up actually of loved ones of survivors of acquired brain injury saying things like, it's like I've woken up next to a stranger or I've, I've woken up to a partner who I just don't recognize anymore. And one of the drivers behind my research were those types of reports, actually. And I'll always remember a couple who the loved one, the significant other, was basically saying to me, well, they weren't like this be before, but since the injury, it's, it's like they almost don't care about me anymore. They just seem like they're being really self-centered, or they're just being emotionally aloof with me. And what was important for them was that this was nothing like their partner was before they had sustained their brain injury. So it was this marked change of behavior. And they found that very distressing, understandably as well. Oh, absolutely. It can be very traumatic for, not just for the person involved, but for the wider family, I suppose. But my next thing I was going to ask, I suppose, relates to that, but in a, in, in a much broader sense that this is there's a societal challenge here too, isn't there? Because a lot of people with an acquired brain injury won't have or don't have obvious visual signs, external signs that they have yeah. had an injury. They, they might they might have a scar or something potentially, but they might not. 
and mm-hmm. they might they might in some ways seem quite in inverted commas normal until they like you're describing slip up and say something that shows a lack of awareness or a lack of empathy and that could have knock-on effects that affect lots of people so it, it is a bigger broader societal challenge that we're dealing with here too isn't it oh 100 percent and for me this relates to how i suppose how much we really understand and know about brain injury mm. and generally public awareness and knowledge and understanding is is generally quite poor actually and members of the public often hold these significant misconceptions about the consequences of ABI so acquired brain injury and how it affects a person and keeping in with this idea of physical recovery for example one of the most common misconceptions that i've come across is people believe in that if a person makes a good physical recovery then they must be absolutely fine in all other ways. So it's this idea, isn't it, that if you look normal on the outside, then you must be functioning normally on the inside. And that's part of the reason why we call it this silent epidemic, because it's not always obvious until you really interact with the person how they're experiencing their brain injury. Yeah. And with things like hemorrhages and strokes, some people associate that with with real physical disabilities, don't they? But it depends on the nature of the in- injury. Some people can get up and, and and be walking again quite quite quickly, but they might have a very significant change to their personality. So it, it's very person specific, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, person specific, and also I think it really does come down to this idea of we commonly look for a physical marker to indicate how well someone is doing or how well someone has recovered or even to kind of judge the severity for example of someone who has experienced a stroke the physical manifestations or the side effects or the symptoms they're just easier to see aren't they they're visible to us that's what we notice more immediately that's what is on the face of it but again you know this is where the bigger problem comes into play because Part of what we need to be doing is to increase in awareness of the full range of changes that may occur after an acquired brain injury. So thinking not only about the physical, but thinking about the cognitive changes, the personality changes, the emotional changes. And again, it's, you know, I talked about briefly a misconception that someone might hold, for example, in terms of physical recovery. But then there's lots of misconceptions as well about other symptoms or areas of outcome. Yeah, go on. For example, well, I can give you a couple of examples if that's helpful. Yeah, please. Believe in a person, for example, with a brain injury can have a memory impairment that's so severe that they cannot recognize family members or remember autobiographical events, but then can be normal in every other way. Or, for example, another common misconception is that recovery depends almost entirely on how hard someone works for their recovery, which of course just isn't the case in the context of brain injury when you're talking about a neurological injury. And for me, I always find this really interesting, but I always like to sit back and reflect at this point and think, well, why do we have such a poor understanding? Like, Why do we have these misconceptions? Why don't we know more about brain injury beyond perhaps the more obvious physical effects Mm. and in part i think it's actually how we portray it for example in the media and on television shows and you know when we think about it they often inaccurately portray brain injury and for example it's really not uncommon i think we could all think of a tv or film for example where 
a second blow to the head or a second head injury of some kind suddenly cures everything. And then the person is back to normal. Or they might use a memory loss such as amnesia as a plot device, rather, for example, than realistically betraying this full breadth of changes that can happen. And then we think back to kind of the older TV shows. So the days of Charlie Chaplin, for example. So a head injury and a brain injury can often be used for comedic purposes. And we see this even now in shows like The Office or South Park. And all of those types of shows, what they're ultimately doing is trivializing the seriousness of an acquired brain injury. Another example I remember a a relative mentioning to me was the UK soap drama of EastEnders. And here, for example, I think we can all think of one character, so Phil Mitchell, who has, for example, had time and time again a terrible head injury, even been hospitalized, for example, for several weeks. And then suddenly he's he's kind of woken up, he's bouncing fit, and he's back to normal day life, just like nothing's actually happened. And for me, I think that's part of the problem is that we're not really representing brain injury and the effects it can have, which are really profound and they can be life altering very accurately, actually, in modern media. Yeah, I've often wondered how Phil Mitchell still manages to just keep, <laughs> just keep going again. Um, no, I so. know. It's like, how many times has he, has he honestly sustained some form of blow to the head or concussion? It's like, it's too <laughs> many to count, isn't it? But he just seems to pop back up and he's fighting fit and it's just like nothing's happened. And I think yeah. that's really unfortunate because they have an opportunity to really present a, a better picture actually of of what it can be like and that's before we get to the alcoholism as well but maybe that's a, that's another topic yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> another podcast yeah yeah yeah. so you've given a good overview there of why there might be public misconceptions about brain injury and i suppose that ties into awareness as well but are there other reasons why you think the awareness amongst the public of all of this is, is so low too i think an, another reason is thinking about just generally awareness raising campaigns so if you you think we're quite often we hear things about charitable organisations raising money for, for example, Cancer UK or or Alzheimer's or, again, thinking of things like cardiovascular disease, but we don't often have the same prominence when we think about head injury and acquired brain injury. So I think generally the amount that we're exposed to it on a day-to-day level is perhaps not where we need it to be. Yeah, I think that's probably contributing. So you have this mixture of kind of awareness, but also kind of how the media represents it as an actual condition. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. What about diagnosis and treatment then? What can be done to, to help that and make both of those things better? Well, that's really where it comes into, I suppose, the global problem that I've been trying to at least partly address. Mm. And going back to neurobehavioral disability specifically, what we found was that identifying the presence of neurobehavioral disability and the severity of that after an acquired brain injury had actually proved to be a really tricky and challenging thing for medical and health professionals to actually do. And in part, when we reflected and investigated the reasons behind that, part of it for me is because they haven't really had access to reliable tools to help them with that specific task. 
And for example, in recognising that, um, a number of years ago now, we, alongside my colleagues, so I conducted a review of existing tools which were being used by clinicians to help them to identify neurobehavioural symptoms. And what we found is that many of those tools had several serious weaknesses or problems that needed to be addressed. And for example, some of the tools were not really representing what we know neurobehavioral disability to actually involve. Or in some instances, they were never designed for or to be used in this particular population in the first place. Rather, they'd just been imported across and were assumed to be fit for purpose. And then in other instances, there was lots of really valuable tools available, but they tended to focus on what we would refer to as this very focal symptom of neurobehavioral disability. So a particular feature rather than taking a global look at how a person was doing. So therefore, even though they were ultimately giving us really important information about a specific domain or a specific symptom, we weren't getting this full picture about the individual. So how they were experiencing neurobehavioral disability and in turn, what we needed to be helping them with through treatment planning, for example. And we we found a number of other problems actually, and as well as things that they weren't really designed for neurobehavioral disability or they weren't designed for acquired brain injury specifically, there were some more fundamental problems. So for example, some relied on subjective impressions rather than an objective assessment of, I suppose, what a person can or cannot do. And that gives rise to issues related to what we refer to as kind of reliability and validity. So it wasn't really clear whether they could, for example, track a person's progress over time or whether they could inform rehabilitation or whether we could actually just evaluate whether what we were doing to support them was actually effective and what was making a difference to them. So I suppose in a nutshell, the message we were getting when we were reviewing these tools was that clinicians and medical health professionals were finding it really tricky. And like I said, in part, it's because they didn't have the specific tools they needed to do the job. That really led us to thinking, well, okay, what can we do about this? So how can we support them to identify your behavioural disability more effectively? And that really was the the crux and the foundations behind a whole body of my research. Tell us about it. A lot of my research has been, again, how do we address that global problem? So how can we support clinicians and medical professionals to actually identify the presence of neurobehavioral disability after an acquired brain injury and to identify that at an early stage so we can start to do something about that so we can support the survivor? So with my collaborators, we actually went on to develop a new outcome tool. And the outcome tool was called the St. Andrew Swansea New Behavioural Outcome Scale, or perhaps more simply today, we can refer to it as SASNOS. And the SASNOS, when we developed it, it ended up being a 49-item tool that covered five major areas or forms of neurobehavioural disability, So things related to interpersonal behaviour or cognition or aggression, inhibition, communication example. And then for each of those items, it basically related to a specific symptom of neurobehavioural disability, which would then 
be rated in terms of its prevalence or its severity on a simple seven point scale from never to always. And this took us quite a few years to develop because it was a involved a really comprehensive development phase where we worked with clinicians, other academics, but also with family members to make sure that the items we were using would capture the diversity of neurobehavioral disability. And then at the other end, when we actually had a tool in place, we spent several years then evaluating, I suppose, whether it was a reliable tool, whether it was a valid tool and whether it was actually helpful. You know, was it of use? Was it fulfilling that gap that we had identified? And when you say tool, I mean, how does this work in practice? What's the what, what's the fundamental process of using this this tool? Yeah, so the fundamental process is it's you think of it almost like a survey, like a questionnaire. So it's a it's an outcome tool that consists forty nine items, and you would ask either a clinician or or a rehabilitation team who know the person really well to rate the person on each of those items, so we can get a good sense of for example, whether they're experiencing any problems with behavior or aggression or the interpersonal behavior with other people. And in very much the same way, you also are able with the SASNOS to ask the person themselves, the survivor, to rate themselves on the tool. So how they perceive themselves to be doing, which of course always gives us really important insight. And then we can also use it in the context of asking, for example, significant loved ones to complete it. So we get a picture of a person which is much more rounded than, for example, a single rating by an individual. Is this is this tool used quite widely? Yeah, it is actually. And um, it's fantastic to see how much the, the SASNOS has been taken up by health professionals. Great. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And we know, for example, that the the SASNOS, so the St. Andrew Swansea Neurobehavioral Outcome Scale, is now used by a diverse set of health professionals and rehabilitation providers across the world. And it's making this really big difference. We know it's available in seven different languages. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and amazing, we know amazing. it's used in at least 18 countries based on the data that we have available. And again, just thinking about the UK context, for example, I looked at the registrations for the SASNOS tool recently, and we had over 150 different public sector organisations and private health providers who were using the SASNOS to support patient care. And that included over 60 different NHS trusts. So it's certainly being used and it's being used on an international scale as well. And I was really pleased recently because I've started working with some colleagues in Bangladesh. And prior to only a couple of years ago, there was basically no brain injury provision at all in Bangladesh to support survivors there with acquired brain injury. So what the SASNAS was able to do for them was to provide them with a tool that could allow them to, again, assess whether neurobehavioral disability was present but it also then meant that they had some structure to talk to different stakeholders or funding bodies to say, these are the kind of symptoms that, you know, our survivors are experiencing. And this is why it's so important, you know, why we have this clinic in place. So it, it's great. So it's not only helping existing teams and services, but it's also helping to establish new ones as well. Yeah, my, my question was going to be, do you get a lot of feedback from people and organisations who are using the tool? Yeah, we do. and. 
And in part, I think that's because it's such a pivotal part of any research we do. You know, for me, we could we could have gone off or I could have gone off and developed a new tool and thought, oh, great, fantastic, job done. But ultimately, whatever tool is created, you have to make sure that it's making a difference. You have to make sure it's working and it's fulfilling a clinical need, right? So for me, working with clinicians is just an absolutely central step. And in the last few years, we've elicited feedback from clinicians and sometimes they've contacted us independently. And what they're really saying is that the SASNOS is making a huge difference to them. For example, they've been saying things about how it's filled this significant gap for them in that it's helping them to identify the less measurable or the more disabling aspects of acquired brain injury. And then others have reported to us how now that they have SASNOS and they're using SASNOS, they're now achieving much better outcomes for their patients than they would have done previously. So that is like amazing feedback for us because we know that presumably we'll be doing something right with the SASNOS tool. And in other instances, we know that it's now embedded into the very fabric of a service in the sense that it's now such a fundamental part of what they do and how they make an assessment of how someone is experiencing the brain injury, that it's even part of their, for example, electronic patient records. And it's a mandatory assessment. So in the sense that once the survivor enters their service, they receive a substance assessment. And then, for example, at three months and six months and nine months into their rehabilitation, you have that assessment repeated because that then enables them to see, well, what progress is being made? Is our treatment plan actually working for the individual? Are we seeing some progression over time? Is it going in the direction that we would want? So overall, it's, yeah, clinicians are telling us that it's, it's making a really big difference. It's helping them to audit their services, to plan treatment more effectively. But ultimately, the, and the whole goal really is that, you know, it's helping survivors ultimately, which is mm. exactly what I wanted when I developed the tool. Well, I actually, I noted down earlier when you said that your primary aim was to support the survivors. And of course, you're, you're doing something that makes a a tangible, practical difference. How does that feel on a personal level? It must be quite gratifying. Oh, it is. It makes me think back to one of the main, I suppose, motivations and drivers for why, you know, ultimately acquired brain injury is one of the my kind of passions, my like strong research interests. And it's because, like I said, this, this is such a life-altering event for individuals and families that you kind of just want to step up, don't you? You want to think, right, what can I do to help? And for me, to be able to stand back and say, okay, I can see SASNOS is making a difference. It's so positive and I'm just so grateful I've been able to do that, to be honest, because sometimes you can feel quite helpless, I think, because it can be such a profound event. It can be quite harrowing at sometimes hearing about how someone's life has changed and you, you feel that whatever you do is not going to be enough. You want to help more. So it is nice to have this sense that, yes, there's something that we're doing which is making a difference and we're hearing it's making a difference. So that kind of keeps you motivated to keep going and to, to do more, really. I guess it's what it's all about, really, isn't it? That's why why you go into yeah. these, these kinds of things. And while we're on this topic, you're one of these, these people and there are these types around who came 
to do their undergraduate degree at a university and and has stayed all the way through. So so you've done... Yeah, I got locked in. Yeah. (laughs) You've done various degrees and you've, you know, you've risen through the ranks of of your academic department. I'm, I'm intrigued as to at what point in your studies did you start thinking seriously about turning this into your career? So the point, it was actually in between my undergraduate degree and my master's in clinical psychology. So I remember I was exiting my final exam for my undergraduate degree. And one of my professors at the time approached me and said, Claire, what are you doing over the summer? You know, would you like an internship? Would you like some part-time work? And it just so happens that I said yes. And as it transpired, the professor who asked me was a neuropsychologist. And because of that position, that was when I really got my first experience firsthand of of working with individuals who had been affected by a brain injury. And that was the turning point for me. That was the point where I thought, yep, this is something that I never knew about before. I had very little awareness of. And one thing that I noticed really because I'd I'd started doing some research and for my master's and during that summer as well in between, was that there wasn't an awful lot of research focused on certain aspects of brain injury. So there was generally this gap in knowledge. So for me, that was quite intriguing. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to try to fill that. So that's what I've hopefully tried to do a bit. Great. Now, there's going to be, well, lots of different people listening to this podcast, but I wondered if you wanted to perhaps offer some advice to two groups in particular. I assume there'll be some people listening who want to actively support survivors of brain injury. And there'll probably be other people who are listening to you and feel quite inspired. I I wouldn't be surprised if Mm -hmm. they do. And they maybe want to go into studying and researching this area. So what kind of advice would you give to both of those groups? I'll start with the first group and then perhaps you can remind me of the second group and make sure I've covered both. <laughs> no problem. But, um, I know. Um, well, first of all, I think these, these requests or suggestions really apply to everyone. And first of all, it, it's things like, you know, don't put yourself, I suppose, at an increased risk. So be safe. And I just want to reiterate, just fundamentally, for example, if you're in the car, wear a seatbelt, you know, drive carefully, don't drive under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Likewise, if you're on a bike, wear a helmet, follow the road safety guidelines. And importantly, if you play sport, for example, you're part of a team, you have a club, be aware of the importance of things like concussion and different policies around if in doubt, sit them out. And if you don't have one, encourage your club to think about them. But if you want to support brain injury in any way that you can, the first thing we can do is to think about, right, how can we raise awareness of it? So just generally talking to someone else, for example, about this podcast will help to raise awareness of what often is an invisible disability. And the other thing is that if you're thinking about fundraising or you're making this huge decision to run a half marathon or marathon and you're looking for a charitable organization to support, you could think about ones which are aligned to a cry brain injury. And the one that springs to my mind is Headway. So Headway is this kind of brilliant charity and it promotes understanding of all aspects of brain injury and it provides information, support to survivors, their families and everyone really who's affected by acquired brain injury. So think about Headway perhaps as your your next charity that you, you may want to donate to. And then the final thing more broadly is to think, well, 
in terms of this broader awareness raising and helping people to see acquired brain injury more readily, maybe if you've got five minutes on your hand, look up the United Kingdom Acquired Brain Injury Forum. And specifically, there's this really important campaign that we're all working towards at the moment, which is called Time for Change. And indeed, just next week, actually, we're just about to release an updated Welsh appendix of that. And this document really talks about acquired brain injury, how it affects people, and what gaps we have in terms of provision, for example, or how we need to redesign, for example, how we view the treatment of um, those affected. And having a look at that report is is something that I'll give you a lot more information about it. And if you remind me, the second part was about thinking about those who might specifically want to do something a bit more directly, wasn't it? Like yeah, research or, themselves. Or, yeah, be, be a bit like you. Well, be be like me. <laughs> I'm not sure I say be like me directly. But yeah, certainly there's, there's stuff you can do. So, you know, the obvious example might be if you're thinking about pursuing a degree, for example, in psychology or related discipline, you know, there's lots of opportunities throughout that degree to to specialise in neuropsychology or to learn about acquired brain injury, even to do some kind of research projects on brain injury. But what's often important, irrespective of what degree discipline that you're currently thinking about entering maybe in the future, is gaining experience is always going to be a good thing for you. There's lots of, for example, organisations, including Headway, which have volunteer schemes. And I think volunteer, and if you can just give up a couple of hours of your time a week, not only will it give you some really valuable experience, but it'll give you some first-hand experience and really help you to understand acquired brain injury. So you might be working with survivors, for example, and their families. So really, if you have this interest, it's, it's never too early to act, whether it's volunteering, fundraising, talking to different supervisors. You know, if you're in Swansea, come and talk to me, for example. And um, you can certainly help you on your way. Well, loads to mull over there, Claire. Lots to think about. And I really appreciate your time today. To find out more about Claire's work, visit her staff profile page on the university's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Dr. Claire Williams. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.